Our topic, a, a miraculous catch of fish and the call of the first disciples. And this is from uh, Luke chapter 5. Uh, this is unique to Luke. And it's an amazing section of scripture and very rich. And I'll read the first 11 verses. So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put it out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which he had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all, and they followed him. The Senate, the reading of God's Holy Scripture. This passage of Scripture relates the great miracle of the catch of fish, together with the call of Peter, James, and John. Um, it's extremely probable that Andrew is here, but he's not mentioned for some reason. <clears throat> Liberal scholars often hold that this is a reworking of the miracle found in John 21, a post-resurrection appearance <coughs> where the same miracle occurs. But not only does such a view hold the inspiration of Scripture in contempt, but the many differences between the stories are great and insurmountable. Rather, it makes much more sense to see an emphasis on Jesus' omniscience and sovereign power in the catching of fish and necessary uh, to increase the disciples, as necessary to increase the disciples' faith and his ability to make them successful in being fishers of men. So it's going to be at the beginning of their ministry, it's going to be at the end of their ministry, uh, at the end of Christ's work on the earth, uh, kind of a parenthesis to emphasize their work as apostles. <clears throat> The fact that we see the same type of miracle near the beginning and after the resurrection near our disciples' Lord's departure, together with the fact that the miracle is done to be seen only by the disciples, marks it as the great sign that the apostle, apostles' ministry after Pentecost will be a resounding success. Because Jesus will enable it to be. Simon and his companions are called to a new task of catching men. And this commitment requires strong faith. And then other introductory matters that are noteworthy as follows. Number one, the story concentrates on Simon, or Peter. Simon's his birth name. Peter's the name Jesus gives him. And anticipates his role as a leader. The first among equals, not the first pope, obviously, of the apostles. He's the functional leader of the apostles. He doesn't have any more authority than the others, but he, is, he functions as their leader. But he's not a pope. Peter's personal response to Jesus is noted, and we can safely assume that this was the response of his companions as well. Simon acknowledges his great sinfulness and unworthiness to be in Jesus' presence in verse 8. This shows us that at this very early stage, Peter understood that our Lord was God, a very God. Um, his response is strikingly similar with those who became, uh, who were aware of theophanies in the Old Testament or that of prophets who carried to the throne room of God in a vision. And we'll look at the one from Isaiah later. There's a sense of great sinfulness and unworthiness to be in God's presence. And that only comes when you're in the presence of God, not, not just some prophet. Number two. Although this section is very similar to Mark 1, 16 to 20, and also you can see Matthew 4, 18 to 22. And let me read Mark 1, 16 to 20. 
And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left for nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were all in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and went after him. It's similar, but it has so many differences that I don't think it's the same event. Now, I know that the vast majority of commentators, both old and new, basically look at Mark and Matthew as... Uh, telescoping what happens in Luke 5 and just ignoring the miracle and just focusing on the call. But there's some differences here, so I think it's a separate event. Luke 5, 3, it appears that Jesus already knows Peter and uses his boat as a platform to preach. In Mark's account, Christ is walking by the sea, while in Luke, our Lord is teaching a multitude from the boat. 5, 3, that's quite a difference. For this reason, the calling of the fishermen in Mark 1, 16 to 20 see Matthew 4, 18 to 22, has already taken place, in my view, and Jesus uses the occasion of the miracle and the catch of fishes to reaffirm and strengthen that call. Although it could be, it, the idea that Mark 1 is a telescoping or just simply an ignoring of the miracle and focusing on the call itself, that's possible. And it's such a popular interpretation, I, I don't want to just simply reject it, but I think there's enough differences to say, this is a secondary call. He called them and then he, he, he calls them again after the miracle to emphasize that he's going to give them the power to do it. If we accept this interpretation and reject the idea that Mark 1, 16-20 is a greatly abbreviated account of what happens in Luke 5, which is, of course, the common view, then the material in Luke 5, 1-11 is only found in that gospel. In other words, it has no parallel in the synoptic gospels. I know that's a minority view. That's the view of William Hendrickson. Um, there are a lot of differences. If you look at, read Mark 1 and read Luke 5, and there's a lot of differences. Um, so I just think it's better to see that as, as a secondary call. And then number three. As noted, there, there's a close connection between this miracle and the post-resurrection miracle in John 21. While the apostles in the 70 who were sent out have a special call of gospel preaching or fishing for men, it is only after the resurrection and Pentecost that their activity bears much fruit. Now, how do we know that? Well, uh, they're meeting, all the disciples are meeting in the upper room after Jesus has uh, risen from the dead. And how many are there? There's only a few hundred. That's after three and a half years of preaching throughout all of Judea. That's not very much. That's not very many people when you take into account the miracles that Jesus did, the amazing miracles and the giant crowds. People were enthusiastic. They, th they were impressed. But how many really believe? Not very many. That'll come after Pentecost where, where you see thousands and thousands converted. 5,000 in one day. Therefore, it was appropriate for our Lord to repeat this miracle after the foundation of salvation was completed and Christ received his kingdom with power. So with all these observations in mind, let us note the many interesting and edifying things in this pericope. Let's look at the setting or occasion of the miracle. The occasion of the miracle is stated in the first three verses. So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that they stood by the lake of Gennesaret, and saw two boats standing by the lake. Okay, whose two boats were they? Peter and Andrew had one boat. James and John had the other. Those, who, those are the people who worked the boats. And we learn later in the account that Peter, James, and John, uh, well, Peter and Andrew and James and John were all partners in their fishing business. <clears throat> The two boats are standing by the lake. The fishermen had gone from their, uh, gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put it out a little further from the land. And then he sat down and he taught the multitudes. The word so it was, or more literally, it happened, marked the beginning of a new section. That's the way Luke, that's his literary device. The occasion is a massive crowd on the sea, the, 
the shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is gathered to hear Jesus preach. Now, Luke uses the name uh, Lake of Gennesaret, <coughs> which, of course, is the name the lake's that, named after that region, that district, while Mark and Matthew like to say the Sea of Galilee. The word sea, thalassa, follows the Old Testament usage in the uh, Greek Septuagint, as where Luke, Luke and also Josephus always use the term lake instead of sea. So the Jews like to call it a lake, the Gentiles like to call it, I mean, the Jews like to call it a sea, following the Greek Septuagint, but the Gentiles like to call it a lake, or Josephus writing for Gentiles. <clears throat> Luke, never calls Luke never calls Galilee a sea, and Matthew and Mark never call it a lake. So that's just, I just find that interesting. Just something to note. The Sea of Galilee on its north and west sides contained a very prosperous fishing industry and an active trade route running through Capernaum to the neighboring Tetrarchy of Philip. Now we know that Jesus focused on Capernaum, and that was his headquarters, a predominantly Jewish area, and ignored, this is interesting, uh, the two nearby Hellenistic cities. Now they're, they're not even mentioned. Uh, he ignored them which were uh, dominated by Romans being political centers, Sepphoris, four miles from Nazareth, and Tiberias, not far down the coast from Capernaum. And, of course, the Romans called the Sea of Galilee the Lake of Tiberias. Christ focused on Jews and deliberately avoided Gentile areas. The Gentile mission, as we know, had to wait for the resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, and then it went to all nations. The command is Matthew 28, 18 and following, and then once they're empowered, Acts chapter 2, it goes to all nations, Paul being the chief apostle of the Gentiles. The crowds came to hear the word of God. This designation refers to the Christian message preached by Jesus and the apostles in the book of Acts. This is the first time this expression is used in Luke's gospel. Grammatically, it means the word that comes from God. They're God's words. They're given by divine inspiration. The gospel has a heavenly origin. It also found in Luke 8, 11, and 21, and 11, 28. See also Mark 7, 13, Matthew 5, 15, 6, and John 10, 35. In Acts 8, 12, and 14, Luke uses this expression to refer specifically to the gospel message. And that was the focus, as we know, reading the Gospels, that was the focus of Jesus' ministry. He preached the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom. He preached the good news of the Gospel, which is tied to the coming of the kingdom. Our Lord was preaching the Gospel, which is a word from God, to the Jews. And they were captivated and amazed by his preaching, for he preached with authority, and his preaching was often accompanied by miracles. The gospel of the kingdom refers to the good news that through Jesus' perfect salvation, God's righteous rule will be restored to lives, hearts, and whole spheres of society, including eventually whole nations. Salvation in the broad sense is a comprehensive message. Okay, we do not believe in unbiblical pietism, where uh, Christ's rule extends to the prayer closet and the church only. No, it extends to every area of society. God commands all men everywhere to repent. And Psalm 72, Psalm 110, Psalm 2, Christ is here to, there to disciple whole nations for Christ. Now Jesus is standing on the shore of the lake. The verb tense indicates that he had been standing there for some time. Surrounded by a crowd. Now due to the size of the crowd, it is hard for the people to see and hear the Savior clearly. The situation of a crowd pressing near him was uncomfortable for our Lord, and of course was not conductive for hearing the message. And this use of a boat to avoid the pressing of the crowd would become a common practice. In Mark 3, 9 we read, So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. In Mark 4, 1 he also teaches the multitudes from a boat. This is quite brilliant. The use of the boat not only is perfect for crowd control, but if you know anything about how water works, it serves as a sounding board so that he can be heard much, much better far away. 
people don't realize this, but uh, toads and frogs in ponds, they get they stick their heads out of the water, and the water serves as a sounding board. And that's why you can hear toads and frogs from very far away. Because the you know in in old in old Puritan churches they had sounding boards above the pulpit, the water serves as a sounding board. <clears throat> so that Jesus preaching from a boat. In verses two and three, we see that Christ figure uh, figures out a good remedy for the situation when he observes the two empty boats next to the shore. The fishermen are Peter, James, and John. Verses three and ten, and probably Andrew, who for some reason is not mentioned. He's mentioned in the account in Mark one sixteen if that's a parallel account. In the calling of the first four disciples, the gospel in Mark, Simon and Andrew, his brother, are casting a net into the sea when Jesus encounters them, Mark 1.16. Here, they are washing their nets, verse 2, and fish after fishing all night, verse 5. The context implies that this incident happened sometime in the morning, possibly early morning. Now, if you know anything about fishing, depending on what kind of fish you're fishing for, there are different times you want to fish. Usually the worst time to fish is during the heat of the day. The best time to fish for certain types of fish is during the night, when it's nice and cool, and the fish like to come to the surface. The nets were round and would be cast off the side of the boat. Once fishing was completed, they would be cleaned of all debris, mended if necessary, if they were damaged, and then they would be hung up to dry. If you left your dirty net, your net dirty in a pile, uh, it would stay wet and it would rot. They would hang them up, get them dry right away. We can infer that these fishermen were now living in Capernaum and were fishing to pay their bills. They had a fishing business. After Jesus sat down in the boat, he taught the multitudes, verse 3. The Jews, uh, their practice was they would read the scripture standing, and then the teacher would take a seat and he would exposit the scriptures while seated. That was the universal practice of the synagogues in the first century. I don't know what they do today. I would imagine they probably imitate Christian churches and they have a pulpit. Our Lord teaches for Peter's boat to catch men. The earthly calling of these four disciples will reflect their spiritual calling. In this account, Jesus addresses Simon as the leader of these fishermen. He was the captain of the boat. Andrew, his younger brother, probably might have had some money in the boat, but Peter was the captain. Even though Jesus and John are not mentioned until verse 10, it is clear they are involved in the story from the plural verb and the object let down your, plural, nets, plural, in verse 4. So Luke, under divine inspiration, is focusing our attention first on Peter, who will be the spokesman and functional leader of the apostles. That's what's interesting about this account. Peter is the focus. James and John are mentioned toward the end, just to let you know they were called too, and they witnessed this. While the Romanists twist scripture by turning Peter into the first pope, an office invented long after the death of the apostles in the close of the canon, Protestants often neglect Peter's role as a spokesman and dominant figure among the original apostles. But he, was he their leader? Did he have more power? And the answer is no. He did not have more power. As an apostle, he did not have any more ecclesiastical authority than the other apostles. Yet he did have play a dominant role, at least in the early days of the church. Joseph Zacchello, an ex-Roman Catholic priest who studied the knows Romanism extensively, became a Protestant, ably summarizes the biblical reasons why Peter was not a pope. Quote, at the Council of Jerusalem, Peter took part in the conversations, but the Apostle James, and not Peter, presided and pronounced the Council's decision. And after they held their peace, James answered, saying, Men, brethren, hear me, for which cause I judge. Acts 15.13-19. So he was the moderator of that presbytery meeting, or assembly meeting. Peter calls himself an elder and not a pope. First Peter uh, Five one Jerusalem Bible. Now I have something to tell you, your elders. I am an elder myself. The other apostles did not recognize Peter as their chief. In fact, they sent him to preach in Samaria, not the other way around. 
Acts 8.14. Now when the apostles were in Jerusalem, they heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent unto them Peter and John. Who sent them? A body of elders. A presbytery sent them. St. Paul did not believe Peter was chief. In fact, A, Paul mentioned Peter more than once, but he never mentioned him with any special title of honor, such as vicar or pope, or gave him any indication that he had held him above any of the other apostles. B, Paul taught that those who attach themselves to Peter or to any other apostle or person as a distinct group were guilty of schism because Christ is the head. 1 Corinthians 1, 12-13, That's an excellent point. Uh, they believe he's the vicar of Christ. He's Christ on earth. He has absolute authority on earth. The Pope does. The Romanists teach it. Paul says, no, that, Paul completely rejected that. Christ is the head. See, Paul did not mention the papacy when referring to the officers of the church. 1 Corinthians 12.28 and Ephesians 4.11. There is no such office. It's never mentioned in scripture. D, Paul as an apostle claimed authority over the Roman, uh, over the Roman church itself. Romans 1.5-6, 16.17. The tradition is, the church tradition, it's not in the Bible, the church tradition is that Peter later in life settled in Rome and was martyred in Rome. But there's nothing about him being the head of the Roman church. Paul uh, was involved with the Roman church being the apostle of the Gentiles. E. Paul was behind the very chiefest apostle in nothing. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, 11-12. So there was nobody who had any authority over Paul because Paul was an apostle and the highest office in the church was apostle. And there were 12 apostles plus Paul. F. Paul expressly denied Peter that Peter was the Pope and further maintained that whatever Peter was to the Jews, he, Paul, was to the Gentiles. This certainly is incompatible with any idea of a Pope in Paul's day, Galatians 2, 7, and 8. G. Paul rebuked Peter without any mention of Peter's supremacy, Galatians 2, 11. If Peter was chief, it was the duty of Paul and of all the apostles to recognize him as such, respect him as chief, and teach in their writings that he was the chief. But neither the Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, the Epistles, nor Revelation ever, ever even mention it. He's never called a Pope. There is no such office as Pope. It came in centuries after the death of Peter. And uh, just to read that, because uh, I know there's uh, Fox and a lot of these, these things on YouTube and stuff. The, you have uh, conservative Jews uh, who are quite good politically, and you have conservative Roman Catholics who are quite good on things politically. Uh, but doctrinally, they're absolutely uh, untrustworthy. Well, let's look at the miracle itself. That's the occasion. In verses 4 to 7, we have a description of how the great miracle took place. Verse 4. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. Or literally in Greek, was was beginning to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. So after finishing his sermons, his teaching to the multitudes... He commanded Simon to move the boat to deep waters and with the help of his companions to lower the nets for a catch. Our Lord, a carpenter's son, instructs Peter, an expert experienced fisherman, where to catch fish. It's kind of amusing. After preaching for some time, it was probably, you know, we're guessing, but you would think around 11 a.m., 12 a.m., uh, people taught much longer back then. They didn't have TV, and the teaching would be extensive. From a purely human perspective, it was sunny and hot and not a good or normal time to fish. The second command, lower your nets, is plural and is addressed to all the men, James, John, and probably Andrew, and they could have extra helpers around that are never mentioned. Hired servants, hired hands. Our Lord gives these or this order while the crowd is dispersing. If any fishermen heard this command, they would have regarded it as something contrary to normal procedure. 
Okay, it's 11 a.m. This is when the fishermen get their nets all sorted out and cleaned and hang them up and go home. <laughs> this is not the time to go fishing. Peter's answer is instructive and reveals Peter's faith in Christ. It consists of two parts. Number one, Simon explains in a respectful manner that he and his companions had fished throughout the whole night, which is the best time to fish, the normal time to fish, and they had caught nothing, not one fish, not one fish. And that happens. I remember we went fishing in the mountains, uh, Lake Shasta, or it was either Trinity Lake or Shasta Lake up in Northern California. I'm in California. And uh, eight people went fishing. My mom caught six fish and everybody else caught nothing. Now, the verb that Peter uses, copia santes, refers to a wearisome work. Wearisome work. They had labored hard and used all their skill as experienced fishermen and had nothing to show for it. Even though they fished all at the right time and at the correct depth, their labor was fruitless. By the way, when you fish in, in a lake, you generally don't go to deep waters. I mean, there are certain fish that you can find in deep waters, but the, the main body of fish, they were probably fishing for tilapia, which is the fish that are common in the Sea of Galilee today. Uh, they're generally in the intermediate areas where there's some grassy stuff and there's tinier fish. This is how fish work. Uh, they eat insects, well, they eat baby fish that live in the grass that's not right next to the shore, but that's offshore a little bit. So that would be the normal place. Now, such descriptions of pre-miracle conditions is common. And it is designed to show the greatness of Jesus' miracle when it does occur. Here it also teaches Peter and the disciples the importance of faith in Christ and the need to rely on him to be successful fishers of men. Okay, he's instructed to do something that's abnormal. And he's an expert fisherman. As our Lord would instruct them later on, John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. He addresses Jesus as master, epistates, a term only used by Luke. And you find it in 8, 24, and 45, 9, 33, and 49, and 17, 13. The other, uh, the other synoptic gospels prefer the term rabbi. Rabbi. Luke likes master. Which indicates that Simon regarded our Lord not merely as a teacher, but as something, someone possessing special authority. And this supports the view that Peter already knew Jesus and regarded him as a master. Now, I didn't go into it here, but you have to understand, if you study the, all four Gospels and, and tie in the Gospel of John, uh, these people were disciples of John the Baptist, and they knew about Jesus for quite a while before the call. Uh, well, not, not a real long time, but they already knew who Jesus was. In other words, he was already a disciple in some sense. The point of Peter's statement is not to show disrespect or to demonstrate that Simon had doubts about obedience, but rather as a contrast to the next statement to show that although what Christ asked at face value or from a purely human standpoint seemed absurd, Peter was willing to do it based on his faith in Christ's person. He would act on faith, not on sight. We fished all night, we didn't catch anything. Now's the bad time to fish. Now's the wrong time to fish. And the deep part of the lake is the wrong place to fish. But because it's you, I'll do it. Number two, Peter declares that he will obey Jesus despite his professional view. His knowledge and faith in the master tells him that he must obey. And this point is emphasized by Simon's statement, nevertheless, at your word, verse five. He is saying, I will do it because I trust in your word. Peter was not to trust his own experience or understanding, but was to trust completely in the instructions of Christ. It's very instructive. As Solomon says in Proverbs 3.5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Peter was to act contrary to his own training and experience, as well as what others might say or think, and trust solely in the words of Christ. This was an excellent test of genuine faith. Would Peter trust in his own understanding, 
Or would he have absolute confidence in his Lord's words? And he immediately obeys, of course. This faith is very instructive for our situation in life where it teaches us a few crucial doctrines. One, of course, is that we must not separate a trust in the person of Christ from the words of Christ. You hear this in sloppy evangelical preaching and even some Reformed churches. You know, we trust in a person, we don't trust in, in the words. No, you, if you trust in the person, you trust in the person's words. Christ's words are faithful. They're true. The two go together. Peter looked at Jesus' authority, person, character, and knew that his words were perfectly trustworthy and that all his commands must be obeyed without reservation. Another is that genuine faith is demonstrated by obedience to the word of God. We must take Jesus at his word even when at the time it does not seem to make sense to us. Ken J. Adams is really good about this when he talks about counseling. When you're married and you're a Christian, you don't follow your feelings when they contradict Scripture. Why do people get divorced so why do pagans get divorced all the time? Well, sometimes the feelings for the husband or wife may not be strong like they were when they first met. People get old, people get fat, people get gray hair, people get wrinkles. You don't follow your feelings, you obey the word of God, and of course the feelings will follow. But you have to obey the word of God. You trust it, not yourself. Though my own reason, experience, and conclusions contradict your command, nevertheless, I bow before your authority and omniscience. Such faith is the foundation of discipleship. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in us richly, so that he is our guide, our counselor, and Lord. He must be the final court of appeal for faith and life, doctrine, and ethics. With our eye of faith fixed on him and his infallible word, we must reject proud reason, human autonomy, self-will, and the temptations or pleadings of the sinful flesh. In the Christian life, this involves picking up the cross and following Jesus, and it involves dying to self daily. Excellent stuff. This is excellent stuff. And the miracle is recorded in verse 6. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. The miracle is described in a very simple historical manner. They obeyed the command of Christ, and their nets were so full of fish, the nets were beginning to tear from the mass and the weight. The verb was breaking, is better translated, began to break. This amazing catch leads to frantic action. The fishermen call out for help to haul in the massive catch. So they signal to their partners, James and John, in the other boat, to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so that they began to sink, verse 7. And these were, these were pretty big boats. These are not little rowboats like you might go fishing on a lake with. You pull up in your car and you... These fishing boats were 25, 30 feet long and they had a place to put... They were big. Help was needed to pull the catch into the boats. So their partners come and help with the pulling into the nets. And a second boat is necessary so the whole catch can be gathered. The account emphasizes the catch's massive size. Not only the net, can the nets barely handle the catch, but both boats are filled to the extent that they almost sink. The expression began to sink means that the boats were so low in the water that some water was splashing over the sides. Obviously, they don't sink because they go to the shore. <laughs> the boats make it back to shore. But that's how full they were. That's how loaded they were with fish. The exact nature of the miracle is not described, but there are three possibilities. How did the miracle take place? Well, one is that the it is a miracle of omniscience. As God of very God, Jesus knows everything and thus knows exactly where a large school of fish is residing. And he simply directs them to drop the nets right in front of the fish, or right over the fish. He's omniscient. Or you could say as human nature, it was revealed to as human nature by the special anointing of the Holy Spirit. Either way. And this is described as a knowledge miracle. And this is very different than, you don't see prophets doing this sort of thing. This is why Peter connects this with Jesus' divinity. 
Another possibility is that this is a power miracle. Christ is sovereign over nature itself, and therefore it causes the fish in that area to swim directly into the nets. That's a distinct possibility. The one who controls the winds and the waves can certainly control a school of fish. And the other view is a combination of direct power with knowledge. Although we are not informed of the exact nature of the miracle, its amazing, miraculous nature was obvious to all and made a very strong impression. So that's the miracle. Very interesting, very amazing. And then let's look at the response to the miracle, which is the kind of the main focus of the pericope. <coughs> the response of this miracle is found in verses 8 to 11. And once again, we're focused on Peter. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. Okay, Jesus is sitting in the boat. Peter falls down on his knees in front of Jesus, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. So also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and they followed him. This first response, the focus, as I noted, is from Peter, who is the central focus of the whole story. Unlike the crowds who simply respond with astonishment or amazement, wow, look at that. And he attracted large crowds. Look at that, that's amazing. But how many of those crowd, people in those crowds actually had faith in Christ as who he was? And the answer is almost no one. As we know from Acts chapter 2, there's two, what, 200 people in the upper room? No, it was 120. There was, it was 120 in the upper room. That's not a lot of people after three and a half years of preaching. So Peter is the central focus of the story, and he gives the response here. Unlike the crowds who usually respond with astonishment, Peter goes beyond this and makes a, a crucial theological deduction. He understands that he's in the presence of the Son of God, and this causes him to sense his own sinfulness and unworthiness to be in Jesus' presence. Perhaps this theological confession is the reason that in verse 8, Luke switches from calling him Simon, throughout the whole story so far he's been called Simon, his birth name, to Simon Peter. Now he calls him Simon Peter. This is the first time in the gospel that Simon Peter is used. Peter Petros, meaning rock, is the name Christ will give to him after his great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, recorded in Matthew 16, 16. And see verse 17 as well. Peter was so overtaken with conviction for his sinfulness that he falls on his knees before the Savior and makes confession. And there are three important aspects to Peter's post-miracle confession. First, he asks our Lord to depart from his presence. The righteousness and holiness of God is so great, awesome, and heavy that it immediately presses upon the sinner his complete unworthiness, his deserving of judgment for sin. And these are the feelings of every God-fearing man who has been brought into close contact with God. What happened after Adam and Eve fell into sin? What do they do? They hid themselves. They went out and they hid themselves. Now, before they sinned, they were walking and talking with God in the garden, having perfect fellowship. But after they sinned, they hid themselves. When Isaiah heard God's, uh, when Israel heard God's voice at Sinai and saw the manifestations of God's awesome holiness, they cried out, Exodus twenty nineteen, "Let not God speak with us, lest we die." When Isaiah was taken in a vision to the throne room of God, he said, and this is from six uh, five, "Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips." For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Under the illumination of the Holy Spirit, those feelings of guilt and unworthiness that makes one want to hide from God also makes one turn toward Christ and the bloody cross. 
You have to know you're sick before you seek a physician. You have to understand your plight, how bad it is, that you're guilty of sin, and that you have a sinful nature before you will flee to Christ. Without a mediator who washes away our sin and imputes his perfect righteousness to our account, our thoughts of God can only bring dread and terror. He is infinitely holy while we are sinners by nature, with a long record of guilt and rebellion. And let us all be thankful that through Jesus and his righteousness, we may draw near to God with boldness, without guilt, without fear, because of Christ. And here's what Matthew Henry writes, and it's excellent here. He writes this, quote, Note, those whom Christ designs to admit to the most intimate acquaintance with him, he first makes sensible that they deserve to be set at a greatest distance from him. We must all own ourselves that we are sinful men, and that therefore Jesus Christ might justly depart from us. But we must therefore fall down at his knees to pray to him that he would not depart. For woe unto us if he leaves us, if the Savior departs from the sinful man. I think I forgot to complete that sentence. But anyway, that's Matthew Henry. I'll just That's excellent. Second, he gives the reason. For... That's epigenetical. I am a sinful man. Verse 8. This is an acknowledgement not simply that he is guilty of sin, but that he is, his character or nature itself is sinful. Our problem before God is not simply a guilty record, but a sinful, polluted heart. And this tragic reality is the reason that no one can earn their way into heaven or merit salvation before God. You just can't do it. You can't stop sinning. Now, obviously, as Christians, we repent from a habitual lifestyle of sin. But Christians still sin. As Paul says, Romans 3, 19-20, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in a sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Islam, Judaism, and Roman Catholicism. Well, Islam and Judaism is just outright work salvation. Tell God you're sorry for what you've done. Turn over a new leaf, and then if you, you're good, and the, and the Talmud talks about the, the scales of justice. If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you get to go to heaven. That's all a lie of the devil. Romanism is more subtle and more deadly. Uh, it, it's deceived more people. Uh, Romanism uh, teaches that you're saved by grace, but then the grace enables you basically to save yourself by good works. And that's what the Federal Vision also teaches, which is a heresy. No, we're sinful by nature. And although in regeneration, our sin, uh, the power of sin is broken and we can uh, repent, and uh, the habitual lifestyle of sin is over, we still sin all the time. Uh, you know, we're not out hitting the bars and going to strip clubs and getting hookers and snorting coke. Yeah, the lifestyle's over with. But uh, sins of omission and sins of the mind and lust and all those things are a problem for Christians until the day they die. You have to have Christ. Even the best of men or the most pious and strict of Christians are sinful men and must always be ready to own it and confess it to God. Christians are men who have repented and turned to Jesus for salvation. While it is true that they are sanctified and have the power of sin or sin is a habitual lifestyle broken, they are still sinners until the day they die. Sin is not a thing of the past until, for your body until you receive a glorified body. Obviously, when your body is dead, your soul goes to heaven, and you're not going to sin anymore. But there is no sin, sinless perfection this side of heaven. Third, Peter addresses Jesus as Lord, Kyria. This is not simply a polite recognition that Christ is a rabbi, but in this context is a recognition of divine sovereignty. Christ's omniscience as well as his holy, his might and holy majesty elicits a full confession. The change from master, epistata to Lord, Kyria is deliberate and reflects the change of circumstances 
as master, he, his orders must be obeyed, and his Lord as holiness means not simply that Jesus has dominion over the whole natural order, but also that his infinite holiness causes heart agony to the convicted sinner. Lord. And of course, Lord, you have to look at the context. Lord can mean, it can be a polite form of address to somebody who's a superior. But not here. It means more than that. It definitely means more than that. Peter can really only understand himself through his knowledge and faith in Christ. This very personal miracle brought home to Simon that he, a wretched sinner, had the heavenly, holy, omniscient Lord in his boat. It is the righteousness and holiness of God reflected in the moral law that necessitated the gospel. And that brings convicted sinners to the foot of the cross. When we look at ourselves compared to Yahweh and Jesus, we can only cry out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Without you, Christ, I have no hope. You're my only hope of salvation. I am unworthy to be in your presence. I'm unworthy to have God as my friend. But you, your precious blood, removes the guilt of my sin and your imputed righteousness. Clothes me with a righteousness that can make me stand in God's presence with boldness. In verses 9 and 10, the focus expands beyond Peter to the others who are with them in the boat. I mean, who are with them, including James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Verse 9, all who were with them were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. The word astonished used here, thambos, refers to wonder or amazement mixed with fear. This expansion leads to Jesus' call to Peter, which also applies to his fishing partners. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. Verse 10. Now, why does Simon not need to be afraid? Well, uh, the Lord provides forgiveness of sins and a new life of sanctification and discipleship. Jesus gives them encouragement and consolation. When men are convicted by the Holy Spirit, they are almost overwhelmed with a sense of guilt and hopelessness. And what if Satan does? He whispers in your ear, there's no hope for you. You're a sinner. Just give up. You might as well just go to the world, get some coke, buy some pot, pick up some sluts in a bar. There's no hope for you. What are you, what are you. what are you doing trying to follow Christ? There's no hope for you. Give it up. No, that's not what we're supposed to do. With Christ, there's always hope. Only Jesus through his precious blood can give us peace and comfort, and he leads us from dread and despair to salvation, meaning, and purpose. You don't ever give up. You always keep your faith focused on Christ. If you stumble and fall, you get up, you clean yourself off, you dust yourself off, and you keep following Christ. You never give up. I've seen so many Christians over the years give up. Professing Christians, they give it up. They go back to the world. It's, that's incredibly stupid because that's to embrace the devil and hell. Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will catch fish. Verse 10, Peter is singled out, but the others are definitely included. There is to be a fundamental change in the lives of these fishermen from catching fish with nets to catching men with the gospel. Men that are to be gathered with the good news of Christ's perfect salvation. And like I said, this will be, miracle will be repeated in, in John 21 after the resurrection. And, of course, it's going to remind them of their, at least Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, it's going to remind them of their original call and this original miracle. And lead them to a complete dependence upon Christ. And then verse 11, they brought their boats to the land and they forsook all and followed Christ. Their faith led to action. Yes, you're saved by believing in Christ. That's true. You're justified solely by Christ through the instrument of faith, which is non-meritorious. It's a gift. But once you're saved, once you're justified, once you're, uh, your sins are forgiven, what do you do? Well, it's time to pick up your cross and follow Christ. It's time to be a disciple the whole rest of your life to the day you die. You have to keep, it, you have to keep following Christ. 
You have to you have to put him number one in your life over everything. And most professing Christians today don't do that. They put money first. What do you think the vast majority of evangelicals send their kids to public school? Money. It's a hassle. They send them to Molech state schools to be indoctrinated in Satanism and perverted sexual practices because uh, they'd rather buy a new car every three years or have a bigger house. That's not wise. We need to obey Christ and put him first in everything. You know, if, you, if you're diligent, you work hard, yeah, you can have nice things. But your kids, the gospel, Christ, always come first. And that's the way it should be. We'll stop there, uh, run out of time. But just, you know, what an amazing section of scripture. You read it and you go, that's pretty neat. And then when you look at it closely, you go, wow, that's amazing. The detail. And it shows us that their faith in Christ, even at that early time, was quite rich, quite strong. And, of course, you know, they had heard John the Baptist talk about Christ. I'm not even worthy to uh, tie his shoelaces, his, his sandal straps. Uh, clearly, Christ is not simply a prophet. He's God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this section of Scripture. Help us to have the faith of Peter. Help us to put Christ in, first in everything and to follow him, to be disciples of him. Don't let us become complacent. Don't let us get worldly. Don't let us put the world first. Don't let us put material things first. Let us keep Christ first in everything. If we're covenantally faithful, good things come. But let us not put material things first. Let us make Christ Lord of overall. In Jesus' name, amen.